Hello, and welcome to the USF Emergency Medicine Podcast. Hello, fellow USF EM residents. This week, our topic for curriculum for Grand Rounds is orthopedics. This is a very broad topic that covers a lot of different aspects. We're going to focus here mainly on the upper extremity, including the shoulder, elbow, wrist, and hand. First, we'll start with the shoulder. The main injuries to be concerned about in the shoulder include tendinitis, rotator cuff tears, bursitis, fractures of the clavicle, proximal humerus and scapula fractures, shoulder dislocations, and injuries to the AC and SC joints. We'll go over these all individually. For clavicle fractures, the main things you need to know are that typically if the fracture is non-displaced and not causing any cosmesis concerns, that these can be managed with a simple sling and analgesics. If the fracture is significantly displaced or causing cosmetic concerns, such as tenting of the skin, these can be referred for orthopedic repair. That's pretty much all you need to know for clavicle fractures. Next, we're going to talk about proximal humerus fractures. These are typically seen in old people who fall on an outstretched hand or in direct blunt trauma to the shoulder. The classification system for proximal humerus fractures divides them into basically the number of parts that are seen on x-ray. For example, there's a one-part fracture, which basically just means that one piece of the humerus has come off. And then there are also two-part, three-part, and four-part fractures, which signify the number of different bone fragments that have come off from the humerus. Most of these fractures can be managed conservatively with a sling unless there are two or three part fractures with significant displacement. It's also important to consider axillary nerve damage with humeral neck fractures. Next, we'll talk about scapular fractures. Fracturing the scapula is pretty hard to do. So if you see a fracture, especially of the body or the spine, be sure to look for other injuries as these require a great amount of force. Basically, any fracture to the body a chromium, glenoid, or coracoid process requires sling immobilization. Surgery is not typically indicated unless there is significant displacement. Next, we'll talk about shoulder dislocations, with anterior being the most common direction of dislocation. This typically occurs when the shoulder is forced in an abducted, externally rotated position. And this is typically how your patients will present, with their arm abducted and externally rotated. Remember that the axillary nerve is at risk for damage with the shoulder dislocation, so be sure to check sensation over the deltoid and passive abduction. Pre-reduction films are not always necessary in these patients unless you suspect that there is also a femoral neck fracture, in which case reduction can make the fracture worse. Remember, there are two different fractures we think about with anterior shoulder dislocations. The first being a Hill-Sachs deformity, which is a fracture of the posterior lateral aspect of the humeral head. The second fracture is a Bankhart fracture, which is a fracture of the anterior glenoid rim. These patients will require post-reduction x-rays as well as a post-reduction neurovascular exam. Dispo for these patients typically involves discharge and a sling and swath with orthopedic follow-up in one week. Posterior shoulder dislocations are much less common, typically associated with either 
seizures or electrocution, and your patients will come in the opposite of anterior with their arm held in adduction and internal rotation. These dislocations typically require orthopedic referral or orthopedic consultation to help with the reduction and sometimes are associated with fractures of the glenoid. Next, we'll talk about acromioclavicular and sternoclavicular joint dislocations. Both of these injuries typically occur due to direct blunt force to the areas. Long story short, these injuries are typically treated conservatively with immobilization initially and orthopedic follow-up in one week. Very rarely will they need surgical repair unless there is a significant displacement. The final shoulder injury we'll talk about is rotator cuff tears. This typically occurs in the elderly and can often occur after just minimal amounts of trauma. Typically, patients will have pain with abduction and external rotation. You can perform a test called the Hawking's test, which involves passive abduction and external rotation and will elicit pain if there is a rotator cuff injury. You can also perform a drop arm test. This is where the affected arm is passively abducted to 90 degrees and the patient is asked to hold their arm at a 90 degree angle. If they're unable to do this, this indicates that there may be a rotator cuff injury. These injuries typically involve ice, immobilization, and orthopedic referral in four to five days. Now we'll move on to talk about the elbow and the forearm. The first injury we'll cover is supracondylar fractures. These are more common in children and typically result of falling on an outstretched arm. If the fracture is non-displaced, the patient can be placed in a posterior splint that extends from the axilla to the palm with the elbow flexed at 90 degrees. They should then be encouraged to follow up with orthopedic surgery within 24 to 48 hours. Displaced supracondylar fractures will require urgent surgical repair. You should also be on the lookout for neurovascular injuries, specifically the brachial artery and the median and radial nerves can become entrapped with such injuries. All other fractures of the elbow, including intracondylar fractures, humerocondyle fractures, epicondyle fractures, and articular surface fractures, are all managed conservatively unless they are significantly displaced, in which case they may need surgical repair. Next, we'll talk about forearm fractures. The first we'll talk about is a proximal ulna fracture. This basically is the same thing as an electronon fracture. Remember to consider ulnar nerve injury with this kind of fracture. And again, the disposition depends on the amount of displacement, with non-displaced requiring conservative therapy and displacement requiring operative fixation. Next, we'll talk about radial head fractures, typically recurring in old people with a fall on an outstretched hand. Remember that initially x-rays may not show an occult fracture, but if you see a positive fat pads on a lateral x-ray, this should increase your level of suspicion and consider getting further imaging or a CT scan. Again, management of this injury depends on the, the amount of displacement present. Next, we'll talk about nursemaid's elbow, which typically is seen in children ages one to three years and manifests as a radial head subluxation. Typically, this happens with sudden longitudinal pull of the forearm. The child will come in holding their arm in pronation and flexion. 
The classic reduction of this injury is supination with flexion until you can hear the radial head clunk back into place. One of the classic forearm fractures to remember is a Montasia fracture. This is a fracture of the proximal one-third of the ulna with associated dislocation of the radial head. This injury requires operative fixation. There is also the Galeazzi fracture, which is a fracture of the radius with associated ulnar dislocation, which also requires operative fixation. Next, we'll talk about wrist injuries. Distal radius fractures are one of the most common types of injuries seen in the ED, typically induced by a fall on outstretched hand. The classic distal radius fracture we learn about is a Collie's fracture, where the distal hand is displaced dorsally relative to the wrist. These fractures can typically be reduced in the ER unless they are more complicated, such as having post-reduction instability, marked comminution, greater than 20 degrees of angulation, or greater than 5 millimeters of radial shortening. These would require emergent orthopedic consultation. A Smith fracture is the reverse of a Collie's fracture, where the distal radius is fractured and displaced volar relative to the forearm. Next, we'll talk about carpal fractures, the most important being a scaphoid fracture, which also involves a fall and outstretched hand. The patient will present with tenderness in the anatomical snuff box, and x-rays may be negative initially. However, if you have a high suspicion, the patient should be placed in a thumb spica splint with orthopedic follow-up for repeat x-rays, as these patients are at risk for avascular necrosis. And remember, the risk for avascular necrosis is greater in the proximal scaphoid. The other classic carpal injuries to know are the carpal dislocations. Specifically, the ones that we are typically tested on are the scapholunate dislocation. This is where you have the Terry Thomas or the David Letterman sign, where it almost looks like a gap between two teeth in between the scaphoid and the lunate. The perilunate dislocation is also important to remember. This is where the capitate is displaced dorsally from the cup of the lunate. In a lunate dislocation, the lunate will be displaced such that it looks like a teacup being spilled. Usually the teacup is upright, but in a lunate dislocation, it looks like it's being tilted forward. Finally, we'll talk about injuries to the hand and fingers. First, let's review our nerve distribution. The ulnar nerve covers sensation to the lateral aspect of the ring finger and the pinky. These fractures can typically be reduced in the ER. It is important to check for the ability of the patient to close the fist properly. If the patient has a significant amount of angulation when trying to make a fist, this can be concerning and may require orthopedic consultation. If reduction is successful with acceptable angulation, the patient can be placed in an ulnar gutter splint. Another classic injury to the hand is a gamekeeper's or skier's thumb. This is the result of force abduction of the thumb, resulting in an ulnar collateral ligament injury. X-rays may usually be negative with this. However, if your suspicion is high, the patient should be placed in a thumb spica splint with early referral to a hand surgeon. As a general rule of thumb, most phalange fractures can be managed conservatively with buddy taping if they are not displaced. A classic injury to be aware of that is highly tested is the boutonniere's deformity. 
This is an avulsion fracture of the base of the middle phalange and can sometimes cause avulsion of the central slip of the extensor tendon. This causes forced flexion of the proximal interphalange joint and fixed hyperextension of the distal interphalange joint. This injury needs to be splinted such that the PIP joint is held in extension to avoid contractures and long-term complications. Another classic hand injury that is highly tested is the mallet finger. This results in forced flexion of an extended DIP joint. The result is an extension tendon rupture with the distal interphalangeal joint held in flexion. Conversely, jersey finger is caused when the distal interphalange joint is, is forced into sudden extension and the patient is unable to flex the DIP joint. Both of these injuries require orthopedic consultation for surgical repair. This covers the majority of upper extremity injuries. There's an extensive list of other injuries mentioned in the textbook. However, what we've covered here is the most highly tested and relevant to our clinical practice. So review the textbook if you have questions about any of the other less common injuries. And that does it for the curriculum review this week. See you in Wednesday in Grand Round.